If you spend even a short amount of time scrolling social media or reading the news these days, then you know that when it comes to health and well-being, the advice on what we should and shouldn't be doing seems to be constantly changing. So it can be really difficult to know if you're doing the right thing or the things that are most beneficial to you. Honestly, I find it confusing too and definitely have my moments where a particular study or theory will come out which just completely turns what I already know to be true on its head. Which is why these days I know to always take things with a pinch of salt and look just that little bit deeper, as well as using a bit of common sense as well. So I want to talk all about this today, about how to navigate the conflicting fitness and nutrition advice that is out there, how to sort the wheat from the chaff and how to make the decisions that are going to serve you best when it comes to your health and well-being. Welcome to the Busy Woman's Guide to Fitness and Wellness, a space where we celebrate you exactly as you are right now, while also looking at realistic and achievable ways that you can increase your fitness, improve your nutrition, and bring more wellness into your busy schedule. We tackle a whole range of subjects from diet culture and healthy weight loss, right through to how to stay motivated, reduce stress, balance fitness and life, and ways to get the most out of your fitness routine. This is your weekly dose of inspiration and motivation. Perfect if you're a busy woman who sometimes struggles to find time for yourself and who would love to develop a positive mindset and a consistent fitness and wellness routine. I'm Alex, your host, women's fitness and wellness coach, founder of ChickFit, mum of two, lover of chocolate, wine and exercise and believer that we can all find balance in our busy lives. Hey, 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 I hope you're having a great day and I hope it's about to get even better from spending a little bit of time with me and a little bit of time with this little podcast. As always, so excited and grateful to have you here and really excited to dive into this week's topic because honestly, I get a bit fed up with some of the fitness and nutrition advice that is floating around. We seem to be constantly flooded with warnings about what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. And, you know, while there are some basics that we can all absolutely agree on, like exercise is good for your health, smoking bad for your health, right? A lot of what we hear doesn't feel quite that simple. And of course, we know the press like to sensationalise this stuff. They maybe have a slight habit of taking a small study on something and suddenly telling us that it's gospel, telling us scare stories about things, even if there might be five other studies on the same thing that had a different outcome. And, you know, ultimately, they're going to choose the thing that's going to sound the most controversial, the most shocking, and they're going to run with that rather than necessarily doing a bit more digging and getting to the real truth. Because unfortunately, sometimes the truth is just a bit boring, right? So what I decided to do today was to just take a few different kind of health and well-being stories and viewpoints, let's say, that have gone around either in the past or are currently doing the rounds and just take them apart a little bit. Because then I think that next time you see one of these stories, hopefully you can kind of use a critical eye on them to help you make sense of it for yourself. Because the truth is that for most of these things, they become these blanket statements. They become these things that are applied to like a whole population or a whole group of people within a population. And they don't necessarily make sense for us as individuals. So each and every one of us is going to have a different take on it. Each and every one of us is going to benefit in different ways from these different things. So we need to be able to kind of look at things with a critical eye and be able to like judge, actually, is this correct for me? And does this make sense for me as well? Because I think that once you can start to do that and you can start to kind of you know, see the nuance within things, then you can start to apply it to your life in a way that actually works for you and actually makes sense for you as well. So I've got four different things here 
like I say, either things that I've read recently, say on Instagram or something that I've seen going around quite a bit, or or things that have happened in the past, which I think just bear a little bit of looking into (laughs) to dig into the actual truth of it. So the first one I want to look at is HRT. So back in the early 2000s, in 2002, we suddenly were told that HRT was dangerous, was risky, that it increased our chances of getting cancer and heart disease, particularly breast cancer and heart disease. And so the result was that literally hundreds of thousands of women just stopped taking HRT. Okay, Even if they were benefiting from it at the time, they just stopped taking it because they were so worried about their risk of cancer and heart disease. And in fact, the study itself was stopped because at that point it was seen as unethical to continue giving women a medication which was seen to have real risks to it. And this is something that has had a continued kind of effect for like the last 20 years, right? So I think a lot of women are still a bit worried about cancer risks with HRT. I think even some doctors, there are some women that I work with who say that they've gone to their doctor asking for HRT and their doctor has said that they don't like to prescribe it because they think that it's too risky, right? And this is all off the back of this study. It was called the Women's Health Institute study. And this was one of the branches of it, which actually looked at HRT, which came out with this conclusion that actually the risks way outweigh the benefits of of HRT at this time. So that has obviously had a knock-on effect for many, many, many years and for many, many, many women who have been scared to take HRT, which could actually be benefiting them in loads and loads of ways. And what happened was that later on, this this study was analysed and it was found that the women on the trial were on average at least 10 years past menopause. So the women that they studied were between the ages of 50 and 79. So on average... They were at least 10 years post-menopause when they started taking this HRT. So already they were in a higher risk category when it came to things like heart disease and cancer and strokes when they started taking the HRT. Um, There were also various other flaws that were found with this study around the fact that a lot of these women were obese and, you know, had various health problems, which again, would already put them in, in a category of higher risk than the general population of getting these diseases. So essentially, it was found that this study was quite flawed. And that, you know, therefore the findings of this could not necessarily be taken as read for every single woman. More recent research has shown a very different picture. So NICE, which is National Institute for Clinical Excellence, now says that HRT for women under 60 generally has more benefits than risks and is generally safe to take. Now, obviously, each person has to look at this themselves. Each person has to look at their risk profile, needs to consult a doctor, needs to discuss the risks and benefits as an individual, because for every single person, that is going to be slightly different. But generally, for a healthy woman who doesn't have any underlying health conditions, who is, you know, within 10 years of menopause, kind of either side. So if you start it before menopause, or you start it in kind of the the 10 years after menopause, generally, it is safe. And generally, it has more benefits than it has risks. You know, some of the risks around increased risk for breast cancer, for example, are kind of the same as the risks of drinking alcohol or being obese. (laughs) So we will drink alcohol quite happily and we'll say, well, you know, I know that maybe I might have an increased risk of cancer if I drink alcohol a couple of times a week, but it's something I enjoy. It's something that I'm I'm kind of, I'm willing, you know, we're almost willing to take that risk, right? I do it. I, I love drinking alcohol and I know that my instance of cancer may, you know, my chance of getting cancer might be slightly increased by the risk of drinking alcohol, but it's not stopping me in the same way that for most women, HRT, you know, should be something that we can feel that we can safely take, right? 
as with any medication, there are always potential risks, always potential risks. But for the vast majority of us, the benefits massively outweigh the risks. And let's remember with alcohol as well, like as an aside, how many studies have you seen that are like, actually, a few glasses of red wine a week, great for you. So again, it's like, well, okay, who knows? <laughs> right? Who knows? Because the story is different depending on where you look. But anyway, going back to the HRT. So yes, so 20 plus years ago, we were told HRT is categorically dangerous. Women should stop taking it, right? Loads of women stopped taking it. Loads of women stopped getting the amazing benefits of it. When it actually turned out that that study was flawed and that study did not show the proper risk for women who were within that sort of 10 years pre and post menopause, who it's actually quite safe for if, if you don't have those underlying health conditions. So that's the first one, which I think that is worth thinking about and knowing about. And like I say, you know, HRT, the risks of it are going to be different from person to person, depending on your own risk profile. So it's definitely one to consult your doctor about, but it's also definitely not one to be scared about either, I, I don't think. Right, the second little thing that I, I want to move on to, and I've seen this quite a lot recently as well, and it's this idea that women must lift heavy weights. Now, you all know that I am all over the idea of getting women into strength training, right? Absolutely, 100%. I will not rest until every single one of you listening to this podcast is lifting weights, right? I will not rest until everyone in my world is doing this thing, right? I'll keep going on at it. But there seems to be this like next level of like, okay, great. Strength training is great, but you know you should be lifting 50 kilograms, right? And I have a bit of a problem with it, right? Because I love a bit of heavy lifting. I'm a big fan of it. And I know you can get some amazing results from it and it can feel flipping awesome and I do it myself. But I also feel that it's a bit misleading to make women think that they absolutely have to lift really heavy to see the benefits. Everything we do is positive for our health, right? Everything we do or everything we do for our health is a positive, should I say. And I feel like the danger of this, the danger of this kind of narrative is that women start to see this. They start to be like, oh, okay, well, I want to do strength training, but I don't want to lift like 50 kilogram barbells. I haven't even got access to 50 kilogram barbells. How am I going to do that? What's the point? And what we end up doing is we put things further and further and further out of reach for women when actually we need to make it more accessible and more doable. And actually there's nothing wrong with lifting a lighter weight. Absolutely nothing wrong with lifting a lighter weight. You are still going to get benefits from this. And in fact, there's a couple of studies that I've seen that basically say, you know, you will still get benefits from lifting less weight for more reps than you will from lifting a heavier weight for less reps, right? So you will still get a benefit from it. Now, do you need to challenge yourself? Absolutely yes, right? If you're, you know, going to the gym and you're doing 20 bicep curls with a two kilogram dumbbell and it feels easy, then, you know, yeah, there's an argument for let's start increasing your weights. Let's start challenging you a little bit more. And I always recommend to my clients and members that as they get stronger, as they grow in confidence with lifting weights and doing strength training, that they start to increase their weights. They start to invest in some heavier weights for their collection so that they can challenge themselves a little bit more. So I definitely, definitely think that challenging yourself and pushing yourself and you know, lifting to failure where you can is really, really important and is definitely part of the equation. But I feel that when we start seeing women lifting massive barbells and saying this is the only way to weight train now for women, then it can be really, really off-putting. And it's also not true. It's also not true. You can still get the challenge with lighter weights, right? Some of the things that I do, 
with my clients and members when I want them to, or when they maybe want to lift the same weight, but they want it to be more challenging is doing things like slowing it down. So for example, on a squat, you could, in some of my programs, we will go down for the count of three and then up for the count of one or down for the count of one and then up for the count of three. So what we're doing is we're keeping that muscle under tension for a longer amount of time, which means we're building more strength. So we can definitely um, slow things down and that's going to add to the challenge. Even if you're not lifting heavier weights, you can add pauses. So go into a squat position, pause for a second and then come out of that squat. And sometimes I will lift much lighter weights doing that than I might do on a regular squat. And it still feels really challenging. That extra pause that you get at the bottom of that really, really adds to the challenge and really, really adds to, you know, how you're building your muscle in the exercise as well. Another thing that I do is add pulses. So you might do a squat pulse. So squat all the way down, come halfway up, go all the way down and come back up again. So all of those things are mechanisms by which you can actually increase the resistance, increase the challenge without necessarily needing to lift the really, really, really heavy weights. So yes, lifting heavy is brilliant. It's rewarding. It's awesome. I love doing it. But please, please, please do not be put off strength training because you feel like it has to all be about lifting really heavy. And I think that's the danger of going into this territory where we start to tell women that it's only worthwhile if we're lifting really heavy because it is also worthwhile if we are lifting lighter and we're still challenging ourselves, right? So that's another little not myth, but another little conversation, I guess, that's going around at the moment. Right. The next one. This is something that came up actually in a recent Q&A in one of my, in the perimenopause group. So I had a couple of members asking me about this because they had recently read advice somewhere that basically says perimenopausal women shouldn't do too much cardio. So the idea here is that in the menopause or perimenopause period, we are less resilient to stress, right? stress becomes higher because we are maybe not as, you know, we maybe don't have the, not the tools in place, but we don't have the natural resiliency that we do when we're younger. So we feel more stressed. We release more cortisol. And then because we're releasing more cortisol, we're laying down more weight. Okay. So what that, what that kind of cascade does really is it says, it tells our body that we're in danger. It tells our body that we need to protect ourselves. And one of the ways that we protect ourselves is by laying down fat stores and particularly laying down fat stores around our tummy. So I know that a lot of women I work with in that peri to post-menopause phase are worried about the fact that they're putting on weight around their tummy, which they can't seem to do anything about. And stress and cortisol is absolutely going to be connected to this, right? So the thinking is that you then do lots of cardio, which is also a stressful thing to do, and you're just adding to that issue, right? So we're adding to the issue of laying down more weight by doing too much cardio. Now, this is true to an extent. I'm not going to say that this isn't true. However, however, and this is where we we need to like look at ourselves as individuals. The first question is, well, how much is too much? <laughs> because that's not clear, right? Too much cardio for one person, for me, might be half an hour. <laughs> Can you tell that I don't love cardio? Anyway, so for one person, it might be like, oh, half an hour is too much cardio. For another person, it might be like, well, six hours is too much cardio, right? So first of all, how much is too much? Who flipping knows? Second, it depends on the person, right? So let's take two different scenarios. So you've got one woman who lives a very stressful life. 
She's not eating great because of it. There's lots of like 4pm, you know, chocolate run at work. She's maybe having a lot of caffeine in the morning to get her going and get her feeling like she's on point and she can do her job and all those kind of things. And because she's really busy, she's maybe not exercising very much and, you know, just struggles to fit it in, struggles to find time, right? So person number one is not looking after themselves particularly brilliantly right? They've got a lot of stress in their lives. They've got a lot going on. They're very busy. Their nutrition isn't amazing. All of those kind of things. Probably that woman is not going to then want to add on hours and hours of cardio each week, right? She's not going to want to then be like, right, well, now I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to go hard on the treadmill for an hour. And then tomorrow I'm going to go and, you know, get on the bike and do a Peloton for 45 minutes or whatever, right? You're probably not going to want to add loads and loads of those other things on if, you are already in quite a a stressed and depleted state, right? That is just going to add to your stress, add to your cortisol, add to your issues, okay? However, if you're somebody who actually manages their stress quite well, enjoys their job, feels like they've got some nice purpose in life, is looking after their diet pretty well, has a few self-care practices thrown in, then you're probably going to tolerate more cardio than the other person. And the truth is for the most of us, we exist somewhere in between. So, The amount of cardio that a perimenopausal woman should do depends on her. (laughs) It depends on the individual and it's going to differ from one person to the next. So if I go out running and I hate running, it's going to feel stressful and boring and long and hard. And so it's probably not the thing for me. But if I go into the gym and I go and lift my weights, then that's not, doesn't feel like particularly stressful to me. But I also know lots of women who love to run, who love to go out for a run. It clears their head. It helps them to clear stress. It helps them to feel better. Great. Keep running. Don't be scared of doing running. Maybe don't go out running for six hours a week, but my goodness, go out and do the running if you enjoy the running and if it is something that helps you to deal with stress but maybe also add in some of the other more nurturing activities as well. You know, add in a bit of yoga, add in a bit of relaxation, add in a little bit of stress reduction stuff. So, you know, go and do the cardio, but just make sure it's balanced out by eating well, recovering well, looking after your stress levels and doing a bit of self-care as well, right? So that's basically an example where blanket statements are not necessarily helpful for women. They scare women off doing something which can be very beneficial to them. And it, it just it needs to be taken with a pinch of salt, essentially. Okay. Right. Last and final one, another of those wonderful blanket statements, which doesn't take into account an individual at all. And that is, it's unhealthy to be overweight. Oh my God, this one annoys me so much because it is so binary. So it's either you're in the normal BMI range, you're healthy, or you're not in the normal BMI range, and therefore you are unhealthy. Right. And we basically see it as this black and white, right? You go to a doctor with a weight problem, the doctor says, well, if you just lose some weight first, or people might look at you and and judge you to be unhealthy, even if you're not, just because of your weight, right? And so we have come to like literally directly correlate your weight with health issues and with being unhealthy. But the truth is, it's not as simple as that. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that weight has nothing to do with it, but it is only one of the factors within that thing, within our health, that actually goes to making us either a healthy or an unhealthy individual, right? Before we go into this a bit more, I want to talk about BMI though, right? So BMI is the thing that we use to judge people. So there are certain thresholds that will tell you if you are underweight or in the normal weight or in the overweight category or in the obese category or, and there's, there's more, aren't there? There's morbidly obese and things like that, right? So there's all these different categories, all these different kind of thresholds over or under which you are either healthy or you're unhealthy, right? 
However, BMI was never actually created as a measure of health. It was created 200 odd years ago by a mathematician who needed a formula to measure the average man, to measure the height and weight of the average man, right? So it was never meant to be used as a means of medical assessment. And it was also never meant to be applied on an individual basis. And this is the important bit. It was never meant to be applied to individuals. It was meant to be applied at population level. This was a way of creating that sort of mathematical formula, which would give averages of the whole population. It wasn't meant to be applied to one individual person to say either they're healthy or they're not healthy, right? It had, at the time, literally nothing to do with the measure of health. So it was only many, 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 many years later that this calculation became BMI, which became the way that we started to judge people's health and to judge if they were like I say, of normal weight, overweight, obese, or whatever it was. But there are problems with this, right? Because there are lots and lots and lots of things that BMI doesn't take account of. It doesn't measure how much exercise you do. It doesn't measure the kinds of food you eat. It doesn't measure how well you look after yourself. You know, you can't use it to measure fat mass versus lean mass. So somebody who, you know, might be have more muscle, might naturally have more muscle and less fat, but they might be seen to be in the overweight or the obese category. I mean, you know, we've all heard about all those sportsmen who end up in the obese category, even though it's all muscle, right? So it just doesn't work to tell us about the health-giving practices that we have in our lives. It doesn't tell us anything about the exercise that we do, the food we eat, how well we look after ourselves. And in fact, the irony of this is as well is that some studies have even shown that being in the overweight category is actually the healthiest place to be. So, you know, there's this couple of studies where they basically looked at people in the normal weight, overweight, obese category. And what they really found was that in the overweight category, those people actually had the lowest risk of all-cause death, i.e. they were least likely to die of any cause. And people in the normal weight category and the obese category actually had quite a similar chance of dying from something. So it just goes to show that it's just not as simple as saying, this is your BMI and therefore that makes you unhealthy or healthy, right? And the fact of the matter is that it's it's not our weight that counts 100%, right? Our weight may be a small part of the story, but there are also many, 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 many other things that we can do in order to improve our health and make us a healthy person, right? So focusing on exercise, focusing on eating well, focusing on self-care and reducing stress, all of those things can have a huge impact on our health and well-being. And yet we're told that weight is the only measure, right? We get beaten over the head with just lose weight and everything will be okay. Well, not necessarily, because if we are put in a position where, yeah, we're losing weight, but we're really stressed, stressed by losing weight for a start, but also stressed by life generally and really busy and we're not looking after ourselves particularly well and we're restricting our calories and we're doing all these things. That's not a particularly healthy place to be, right? We can affect so much about our lives without ever thinking about what we weigh. We can still do so much more to protect ourselves from illness and disease by simply focusing on exercise and eating well and self-care. And somebody who might be seen as being in the overweight or unhealthy category and who does those things themselves is ultimately going to be more healthy than somebody who is of a normal weight, but has a stressful job, never exercises, and is too busy to take proper care of their nutrition. So again, it depends on the person and it depends on that individual person's situation. 
Of course, if somebody is overweight and they are eating really badly, they're never exercising, they don't look after themselves, they're high stress, of course, of course they're going to be unhealthy. But it's not the weight in and of itself that makes them unhealthy. It's the collection of all of those things that make them unhealthy. And likewise, being in the normal weight range doesn't guarantee health. Because if you're in the normal weight range and you're running around like a headless chicken and you're always highly stressed and you've got flipping high blood pressure and all those kind of things that go with it, then you're not going to be healthy. So I think we need to stop conflating overweight directly with the level of our health, right? There are so many other factors that come into our health. And that's why, again, this is all this is to be taken with a pinch of salt. This is to be taken on an individual level. This is to be taken on you looking at yourself and really judging and saying, right, am I looking after myself well or am I not? And what can I do to look after myself better regardless of whether that changes my weight or not, right? So what I'm really saying here is that everything is nuanced, right? There is no one size fits all when it comes to health and well-being. As we've talked about today, there are studies which stopped hundreds of thousands of women from taking a beneficial medication and that study was flawed. There are things that we've been told about weight and health that may not tell us the whole picture. They do not tell us the whole picture about the individual. And there are also stories about the kinds of exercises that we should be doing, whether or not they suit us as an individual. Who cares, right? Just give them a blanket statement and make them worry about that. So when it comes to those big health and wellbeing stories, and when it comes to the next time you hear something like that, and maybe it worries you or concerns you or makes you go, oh, I really need to lose weight because then I'll be healthy, rather than just looking at, okay, what am I doing in my life that makes me healthy? Next time you see something like that and it's triggering you, or you are starting to question what you're currently doing, or you're worrying that you're doing the wrong things, then it always pays to just ask yourself a couple of questions. So number one, is this a blanket statement that's being applied to a whole group of people? <laughs> and I think from you know what, what we've shown here, usually these kind of things are, right? That study on HRT, suddenly it was this blanket thing that was applied to all women. Not all women are the same. A lot of women will benefit from HRT, right? Just like the you know perimenopausal women shouldn't do too much cardio. Again, blanket statement. You're not looking at the individual. You're not looking at their current status in terms of health and well-being and and you know recovery and stress and uh, all of those kind of things right all of those kind of things make a difference to how much cardio is okay and good for each different person and that you know it's unhealthy to be overweight again blanket statement not necessarily yes it may be but also it may not be right and we get to choose how we look after ourselves. And it's the way that we look after ourselves in our lives that determines our health, not just our weight, right? It's not the only thing. So yeah, anything that's a blanket statement and that's being applied to an entire group of people, always be wary of it. I think the second thing is just every study that you read about, just take it with a pinch of salt, okay? Because not every study is good quality. In fact, there's plenty of studies out there that are not good quality, that are not very well reviewed, that are not peer reviewed. So you know, I'm not going to sit here and give you a whole list of ways that you can find out if it is a good, good quality study. But all I would say is just take it with a pinch of salt. If it sounds sensationalized, or if it sounds too good to be true, or anything like that, then more often than not, there is a bigger story behind it. And it's something that you might want to think about researching a little bit and finding out a bit more about. 
Because more likely than not, if one study says one thing and it's sensationalized and it changes the way we see something, there might be another three or four studies out there who actually tell a very different story. So just be wary. If a paper or an article you read or anything talks about a particular study, just be wary that that study may not be of the best quality. So always take it with a pinch of salt and think about think about it as almost like collecting evidence, right? We gradually collect evidence to support one thing or another, right? And the more we see of it, you know, the more that we can go, okay, so this is making sense to me. And this is, you know, this is starting to add up to support that particular position, right? So it's not just one thing that should change your mind. It should be a collection of different things because like we all know that we can, you know, if you went into Google and you searched why is red wine bad for me, it would come up with a list of reasons why red wine is bad for you. But then you could go and search for another article, why is red wine good for me? And it would come up with a whole list of reasons as why red wine is good for you and a whole lot of studies. So you'll find studies both for and against, right? You have got to make your own informed decision about that thing and not take it all as red. Just take it with a little pinch of salt. And then I think the final thing is, how does this apply to me as an individual and my own current health and well-being? So always questioning it as an individual, because again, a lot of these things are done on a, you know, on a blanket statement basis, applied to all people in a population or all people in a group, and it doesn't necessarily work for all of us, right? So we've got to apply that particular thing to ourselves as individuals in our own situation, because it's going to, you know, even between you and your friend, those two things might differ, right? So hopefully that's given you a few things to think about. I hope that by sort of going through those studies, those views, those, you know, things that I've I've seen and read, it gives you a little bit more of, of an idea of, you know, how you can start to question those things and how you can look at those things in different angles so that you actually find the advice that is going to work best for you as an individual uh, and you can start to navigate those conflicting bits of advice because I, that's the problem. We get so many conflicting bits of advice that we end up just completely stuck like a rabbit in headlights and procrastinating and we don't do anything about it at all because we're like, well, I don't know what the right thing to do is. So hopefully this gives you a bit more of a an overview of like how you can make it suit you and how you can like really question the things that you hear out there in the world. Right. I hope it's given you food for thought. And I hope that, you know, next time you see that sensational story or that big blanket statement about what we should or shouldn't be doing, that you will be able to kind of look at it in maybe a slightly different way this time and make sure that you, you know, it works for you. Um, if you ever have any questions about this, about anything you've read, anything you've heard about, then I'm always here to help. So all you need to do is message me on social media at Alex Chickfit. But I'm going to leave it there for today. I'm going to love you and leave you and I'll see you all again next time. Thank you so much for joining me today, beautiful people. If you have loved listening in and want to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, then simply subscribe or follow the podcast on your favourite podcast player right now. You can also come and join me on the socials at Alex Chickfit and I'll see you again next time.